name is Andrew Patrick, and on the morning of October 14th, 2014, uh, my heart stopped beating, went into uh, cardiac arrest. I'm Jessica Patrick, and I am Andrew's wife. That night at 3 a.m., I woke up with a start. Like, it wasn't like just barely waking up. It was like standing straight up in bed. My name is Joe. I'm a Chicago firefighter. I work at the firehouse at uh, Engine 95's quarters. I work on truck 26. The bells went off and we jumped in our gear and hopped up. I believe the call came in as a uh, seizure victim, someone having a seizure. And so I turn to him and all the lights are out and I say his name a couple different times. And with no response, I flip on the lights. No response from Andrew. My wife uh, woke, woke up and um, to be not breathing, called 911. And his face is starting to turn gray a little bit. And like, he's not breathing anymore. And I'm not a trained professional, but I couldn't get a pulse on him. Paramedics came as quickly as they could. And uh, Joe, the, the uh, paramedic, the fireman, was doing CPR on me in the ambulance all the way to the hospital. We had a really good paramedic uh, show up with us, Beth. So he's only 33 and looks in great shape. I mean, she still had enough experience and training to know to put the, the AED pads on him to analyze for a rhythm. At that point, he was in full, full cardiac arrest. I could hear the machine where they would say clear and like, I would hear it go off, but I could tell that they weren't really getting a response from him. So that was Tuesday, really early in the morning that he went to the hospital. He was out all day Tuesday, all day Wednesday. Eventually they figured out that it was cardiomyopathy that had happened, where a virus attacked his heart and caused the arrest. I think it hit me Wednesday night that I hadn't talked to him since Monday, and I didn't really know. I mean, I knew that he had been without oxygen, and I knew that that can cause brain damage. And Thursday morning, one of the nurses came into the waiting room, and he's like, here, come, come here, you know? And even though they were trying to keep him sedated, he just kept waking up. It was definitely uh, God pulling me through through the entire time um, that I was in the hospital and even out, out of the hospital. By the time they were releasing him, his lungs were completely clear. There was no inflammation or anything left. I feel like by the end of the week, even Dr. Suit was like, this is a miracle. Like, there is no explanation, but that this is a miracle. Um, the first memory that I ever have of um, waking up after October 14th was that Sunday morning and wanting to go to church. If you want to go, we can all go. And of course he wanted to go. <laughs> and uh, so he shows up at church like not more than a week after being out of the hospital, I think much to the surprise and joy of many people. It was a couple months after that, there was a call for people to be baptized the ne next week. And Andrew's like, I want to do that. It was huge to, to see him make that decision for himself to recommit to God. As we were heading out from church, Jarrett stopped us and was like, by the way, one of the guys that answered the call that night happens to be at our church. Jared was telling the story of, you know, oh, he was you know, dead for half hour, 45 minutes. And, and you know, now he's walked out of hospital and he's He's doing great. I'm like, this sounds really familiar. So I approached Jared after him. I'm like, does he, does he live on Adams? He's like, yeah. I'm pretty sure I was on that call. Beyond all of what God did, 
you know, in our story, just seeing like how he weaves stories together like that, like it was pretty mind blowing. Honestly, only God could have put everyone in the right place to be able to help him that way. Uh, I'm amazed at how far I have come and I know that it's completely God, you know, seeing that God heals bodies, heals minds, heals, heals hearts, actual hearts. Um, and I'm so thankful. I think I was able to grow as a human being, as a firefighter and as a you know good Christian by being given the opportunity to help Andrew. So some of my closest friends are at church that have just come around me and come around us as a couple and supported us. I really don't know how I would have made it through without the support. I just can't thank people enough. And even being able to continue to pick up where I left off serving and that I can use the, the God-given gifts and talents that I have. And I believe that he is using me and will use me in the West Loop in the, in the city of Chicago with, uh, with For the Love. an amazing, powerful story. I mean, Joe said it, you know, he was dead and then he wasn't. I mean, that is a powerful story that we see in Andrew's life. And I, uh, I've known Andrew and Jessica for many years. And I remember that first Sunday they came to church after he had been in the hospital. I was there in the hospital with him the day after it happened and stood over his body and didn't know what God could do, would do. And, and then to see him at church and then a couple weeks later, he's back in the booth serving where he had always served. And I'm just, I'm thinking to myself, like, this guy was dead, <laughs> literally dead. And he's serving a month later. And it got me thinking, not that I would ever say this, but what's your excuse? I mean, <laughs> again, I would never say that, <laughs> but I mean, for real. How powerful is that? And that God had brought Joe. Joe had just started coming to Soul City when Andrew was baptized. And, uh, and to have Joe be a part of their life still, to save Andrew's life and now to still be in community with him, how beautiful is that? Only God. And I, so I thank Joe and I thank all of our firefighters and our EMTs and our first responders and our cops who do the job that we depend on them to do. And for those who do it with honor and dignity and serve this community, we want to say thank you. So thank you so much for that. I love it. I, uh, my name is Jarrett Stevens. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Soul City Church. Happy Father's Day uh, to those of you who are dads or who have dads. And again, for all the men in our community, we're so grateful for you. You matter more than you know. And so we're so glad that you're here today. Uh, we are in week two of a teaching series called Defining Moments, where we're looking at uh, pivotal moments in people's lives that they had a defining moment with Jesus, not one that they could have planned for or expected, but how they responded in this moment changed and transformed their life, defined them, defined the lives of those around them. And because of how they responded, we're still telling their story today. And whether you realize it or not, you have moments every day of your life that can be God moments, defining moments. And I don't want you to miss a single one of them. In fact, I want you to be able to mark moments like we just did with Andrew's story, to be able to mark those and say that God is, surely God is moving, surely God is here. And I want you to be able to respond to him. And so today we're going to look at the power of the word please and how the moments we're going to look at today from two very different people all come back to this one word of please and how we can 
find power in that word uh, today. You remember when you're a kid, uh, your parents tried to beat the power of the word please into you, didn't they? No matter what you did or how you did it, what you asked for, they always told you, make sure to say please, make sure to say please. I just, so I just did it yesterday. We were at a little party here in the neighborhood and Gigi wanted some water. And so she went up to ask for some water. And I said, make sure you say please. You should make sure you say please. You know, and what's she going to say? Like, my dad told me to say please. I mean, that's not really the heart of what we want to do, but we want them to know, like, be, you know, we always ask with please, always ask with please. And so as parents, those of you who are parents or remember your parents doing this to you, that's a powerful lesson to pass on to your kids until they actually get it and then use that word against you. Because those of you who are parents or who were kids and remember what that was like, you learned the power of the word please when you could break your parents down with the word. Please can we go? Please can we go? Please can we go to the water slides? Please can we get an Xbox? Please can we go? Please can we have ice cream? Please can we have Oreos for dessert? Please can we have Oreos for lunch? Please can we have Oreos for breakfast? I mean, they just break. Please, 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 pretty, please, pretty, please, sugar on top. I mean, they'll just break you down with the word please until you regret the day that you ever taught it to them. All right? It's the power of the word, please, that we want our kids to know it. And we want our kids to use it. And if you have kids, I'm sure you've probably taught your kids. But isn't it interesting that this word that we learned early on, the older you get, the more independent that you get, the more successful that you get, the, the more powerful that you get, the more that you forget the word, please. The more you begin to realize that you can kind of do it all on your own, the less and less you use the word please, specifically when it comes to God and how we pray. You maybe have a hard time saying the word please to God, and we have all kinds of different reasons for why it's hard for us to say please to God. For some folks, it's just, it's just good old-fashioned pride. Like you, just, you want to be able to figure it out and, and fix it on your own, and so you're not going to ask God or get God involved. He's got other things to do. You're not going to bother him with that. Or maybe for you, it's that you thought that you asking God is kind of like a a bother to him, like God's busy, and so you're going to bother him with all of your burdens, and so you don't ask God, please. Or maybe you, you asked God for something, you said, please, you prayed, you prayed, you prayed, and God didn't answer like you wanted or when you wanted. And so without even realizing it, you made a silent, solemn vow that you'll never say the word please to God again. We have a hard time when it comes to using that word that was so familiar with us as kids, now that we're adults, when it comes to saying please to God. When is the last time that you said please to God, where it was the only word you had to say and it was the only thing you could do was to simply ask God, please, please, please. Well, today we're going to look at and learn the power of please, and we're going to learn to say it again. We're going to practice saying it again today, how to say please uh, to God. And we're going to learn it from two defining moments, from two very different individuals, and the power they found in the word please at the moment of their powerlessness. In their powerlessness, they found the power of the word please. And my hope and my prayer for you today is that you would do the same. That when you find yourself up against impossible odds in this life, when you find yourself with no other options, as you will, or as you may currently already find yourself there, that you would find the power in that word please and that you begin to practice it and pray it today. So what I want you to do is grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 8. I love the story we're going to get into today. Turn to Luke chapter 8. It's on page 723 in the Gray Bible. So if you have a Bible with you, fantastic. If you don't, we have one for you. It's the Gray Bible in your seat back or in the seat in front of you here and in our overflow space as well. There's always these Bibles. You can turn to page 723 in the Gray Bible, Luke chapter 8. Grab a pen 
Would you grab a pen? We're going to circle a couple words. Pay attention to a couple things uh, in this story. It's actually two stories, uh, powerful stories of this defining moment that all comes down to this little word of please. Let me give you context as to where we're at in Luke chapter 8. We're early on in the public ministry years of Jesus' life. That's the last three years of his life are called the ministry years of his life. This is where he's teaching healing, performing miracles, where he was moving towards the cross. And this is one of the moments heading towards the cross. The ministry years of Jesus are what the bulk of the gospel accounts are made up of. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the story of these last three years of Jesus's life. And Jesus had been teaching. Jesus had been uh, calling his disciples. In fact, this is not long after the events we looked at last week with the calling of Matthew. And Jesus in this story had just come from healing someone who was demon possessed. And I got kind of walking my son through these stories. And so we talked a lot about demon possession over the last two weeks to the point that it scared me. And so he had just healed, just, Jesus had just healed a man from a demon. He's coming back by boat to the familiar uh, shores of the Sea of Galilee. He's coming right back to a town that he uh, loved and where he spent a lot of time teaching. And there was a crowd waiting for Jesus in that moment. So this is what it says, starting in verse 40, Luke chapter eight, verse 40. This is now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him. For they were all what? Expecting. expecting him. They were all expecting him and they all had their expectations of him. They were waiting for Jesus to get back because they'd heard what he had said. They'd seen what he had done. They'd heard that he was healing people, that he was casting out demons. So they kind of brought all their stuff to the shore and they were waiting for Jesus to get there so that he could help them. Then right at that moment, a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet. And what's the word? It says that he was pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Now, this is a defining moment in the life of Jairus. Text tells us that Jairus was a leader in the synagogue. The synagogue was sort of the spiritual hub, a spiritual center for teaching and for learning. It was a hub in the community for that. And, and Jesus himself taught in several different synagogues. This was a place to learn more and more about God, the heart of God, the ways of God. And so he's a leader within that. He's an expert on religion, an expert on God. And other synagogue leaders at this point in the story had mixed opinions about Jesus. Some were beginning to see that he just might be the long-awaited and promised Messiah that all of the passages that they had so meticulously memorized pointed to. Some were beginning to see that. But most saw Jesus as a nuisance, um, a distraction at best, a threat at worst. So we don't know where Jairus was on that spectrum. We just know that he was a desperate daddy and his daughter was dying. And so he was willing as a religious expert and leader to come and fall at the feet of Jesus, pleading and begging, please, 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 please. To fall at the feet of another teacher was to submit to their authority, to acknowledge them as someone greater than you. And so here we see this religious leader taking this posture of submission to Jesus and saying, please, 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 please. Maybe he's just a dad with no other options. And those of you who are dads, you know, <laughs> you know about this. You know that you would do anything for your kids. If they were sick or if they were hurt or if they were dying, you'd do anything for them, wouldn't you? Of course you would. The right answer in church is yes. Of course you would. <laughs> if your wife is next to you, it's yes, of course. Of course you would. Of course you would. Of course you would. 
But you don't have to be a dad to know what that's like. Maybe for you, there's someone you know right now who's sick. And you do anything for them. Or who received a diagnosis they weren't expecting. You do anything for them. Or someone you know right now is dying. And you do anything for them. Then you know the state that Jairus was in. You know. You're familiar with it. This last week I bumped into a friend who's a part of Soul City Church here. And, uh, here in the neighborhood. Bumped into them. And you know, I just said, hey, how you doing? What's going on? And then really before even saying anything. Kind of did the... Like the stutter prayer, or the stutter breath that comes right before crying. And they just began to start crying right there. And I, you know, normally it would be something that I said, but I knew I'd only said, like, how are you at this point? So, you know, I said, what's going on? And they began to tell me about how they had just received that night before a call that their mom had been diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, completely out of the blue, healthiest person they know. And they were just wrecked and desperate. And just through tears, trying to say, I just I don't, know what to, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. That's the desperate posture that Jairus is in. My hunch is you know a little bit about that. You can relate. And so here he is pleading and saying, please, to Jesus. And Jesus is moved. And so he begins to head to Jairus' house. But our story gets interrupted. Verse 42. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost, what's the word? Almost crushed him. So there is a lot of people pressing in on Jesus. A lot of folks there. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. It's an interesting moment, another defining moment in the making. The text says that she was a woman. Now, there's a story of contrast here because we know about Jairus. We know his name. We know his position. All we know about this woman is her condition. She's an unnamed woman who'd been suffering for 12 years from internal bleeding, and nothing could stop the bleeding. In Mark's gospel account, he makes sure that we know that she had exhausted all of her financial resources trying to find a cure, and she was only getting worse. 12 years this had been her condition. Think about it this way. For as long as Jairus' daughter had been alive, this woman was suffering. And so she comes in her pleading moment to Jesus. She is physically suffering from what we can tell from what the gospel of Mark tells us. She's suffering financially. And there is a social stigma that is put on her as well. According to Mosaic law, in that time, if you suffered this kind of bleeding, you were deemed unclean. And that meant that you couldn't participate in any of the temple worship. You couldn't participate in any sort of community engagement. In fact, to be unclean meant that you couldn't touch another person lest you make them unclean. And so imagine for 12 years not being able to touch a single person. Those of you who are introverts are going, keep going. (laughs) Tell me more. Okay. Imagine not being able to hug a friend. Imagine not being able to hold your child. This is part of the deeper condition beyond her physical condition. She had been stigmatized. She had been pushed to the outskirts of society. And so here she is breaking through the crowd to find Jesus and to touch him. 
It says this in verse 44, she came up behind him because that's the posture she took in her culture that day. It was always in the outskirts. She came up behind him and it says that she touched the where? Touched the edge of his cloak. Very interesting. Circle that. It's a very interesting little note here. And immediately her bleeding stopped. 12 years of suffering, financial, physical, emotional, cultural, social suffering, and immediately it stopped by touching the corner of his cloak, the edge of his cloak, and she is actually healed. Luke wants us to pay attention to exactly where it was that she touched him. It was the edge of his cloak. Why is that so important? Because uh, Jewish men in Jesus' day, and still to this day, would wear a prayer shawl. Devout Jewish men would wear a prayer shawl as part of their clothing. And the prayer shawl would have four corners to it. And on each of these four corners were little tassels called tzitzi. All right, so I want everyone to say tzitzi. Tzitzi. Bless you. And so (laughs) that was there. And what each of these braids, actually, these little frayed braids at the end, reminded maybe you've seen them. Maybe you grew up wearing one. Maybe you wear one still to this day. What they were to remind you of is actually the law and the commandments of God. So anytime a man was wearing his prayer shawl, it reminded him that he was surrounded by, that he was covered by, that he was wrapped in the law and the way of God. And so what we see here is that those little frayed edges is what she reaches out for. Most likely that's what is meant that she's reaching out to grab. And those little frayed edges kind of had a symbolic sort of uh, touch point to folks. They reminded folks of the... You know, the, the, at the end of a bird's wings, those last couple feathers that don't look like they do anything, they just kind of stick out like that. You know, if you think about a bird's wings, those last, that's kind of the imagery that these things had, that they just sort of stuck out so that people could see that this person trusted and followed the word of God and was committed to the way of God in this world. So we see something really interesting. She reaches out for his tzitzi, for the corner, the edge of his prayer cloth, because maybe, 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 just maybe, She remembered the little prophecy spoken at the end of the book of Malachi, some of the last words spoken in the Old Testament in reference to Jesus in Malachi 4.2. It says, but for you who fear my name, for you who love me, the son of righteousness will rise with what? With healing in his wings. And so you have this imagery of these tassels at the end of the prayer shawl where healing was promised to be in Messiah's wings. And so in faith, she reaches out to grab the edge of his prayer shawl, healing in his tzitzi, in his wings. This woman who lived on the fringes of society reached out for the fringes of Jesus's cloak. And in an instant, immediately, she is completely healed. This is a defining moment for her. And it all came down to this for her. Her plan was to sneak up behind Jesus, hope to get healing there, and then disappear back into the crowd where she spent most of her days. But Jesus had other plans. Verse 45. This is, I love this. Jesus said, who touched me? Wait, who, who, t- some, who touched me? You can see this moment where the crowd is gathering in around Jesus. They're pressing on Jesus. And he goes, no, 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 hold up, hold up, hold up. Someone just touched me. Now imagine that moment. This is a crushing crowd. And what I love is the text goes on to say, when they all denied it. So you got to love this moment. People are like, it wasn't me. Jesus, it wasn't me. Jesus, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. I mean, people like it with their hand on him. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. My friend made me do that. So, you know, it's, 
who touched me, Jesus? Everyone is touching you. And in fact, that's what Peter goes on to say. He's like, uh, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. What kind of question is that who touched me? Everyone is touching you. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. Someone touched me with intention, with faith. Someone was looking for healing in my wings. I know that power has gone out from me. Now, it might, at casual reading of this, you might think that Jesus is irritated that someone like stole power from him. You know, they kind of hooked up to his line and stole power from him. That he's irritated that in all this crowd, someone would have the audacity to reach out and touch Jesus. Like he's getting like a little MC hammer. Like you can't touch this on him, you know, in that moment. That's awesome. That joke did not work at eight o'clock. So God is... <laughs> God is good, he is faithful, and you, you are my favorite. So I'm glad that works. I was really nervous about that. But in truth, Jesus was not angry. He wasn't angry that someone touched him. He wasn't looking to accuse whoever it was that touched him. He was looking to affirm someone. He was looking to affirm her audacious faith that would reach out for the tzitzi, the corner of his cloak, the healing in his wings. It says this in verse 47. Then the woman seen that she could not go unnoticed. For 12 years she'd gone unnoticed. But she couldn't go unnoticed anymore. Came trembling and fell at his well, fell at his what? Just like Jairus. Fell at his feet. And in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him. And how she had been instantly healed. And I love this moment. She pours out her whole heart to Jesus. She tells the whole truth. She tells her whole story. Why is that so important? Because you simply cannot be made whole unless you're willing to tell the whole story. You can't hope to be made whole unless you're willing to tell the whole story, to not leave out the parts that make you look bad, to not leave out the parts that you don't know what to do with. You can't be made whole until you tell the whole story to God, until you tell the whole story of your addiction, until you tell the whole story of your abuse until you tell the whole story of that broken relationship, until you tell the whole story, you won't be made whole. But, but, if you're willing to tell the whole story, the whole truth, all of it, the whole story to God, to yourself, to a safe circle of others, you can actually be made whole. Whole. And that's exactly what we see here. Verse 48, it says, Then he said to her, and I love how he addresses her, daughter. He gives her dignity in one word. Daughter, you belong to me. You have a place in this world because of me. Daughter, he says, your what? Your faith has healed you. You had nothing else left in this world, but you kept, you held on to faith. And your faith healed you. And then he says, now go in peace. Go in peace. 
Jesus wasn't put off by her pushiness. He wasn't bothered by her boldness. He, he, he wasn't concerned about her being unclean or him somehow being unclean because what the reality is with Jesus is, and I want you to get this, the reality is with Jesus, it's okay to not be okay. I want you to get that. I want you to turn to the person next to you right now and I want you to say, with Jesus, go ahead and tell him right now. It's okay to not be okay. With Jesus, it's okay to not be okay. Was this woman okay? No way. She was not okay. Culturally, society, she had suffering, physical suffering, financial suffering, emotional suffering. She was not okay. But with Jesus, it's okay to not be okay. It's all right to not be all right with Jesus. You don't miss out because you messed up or because you're a mess. It's okay to not be okay with Jesus. And that's exactly what she finds in the dignity he gives her by calling her daughter. You're welcome here. You're wanted here. There's a place for you. I'm here for you. This is what we looked at last week in the calling of Matthew, the tax collector, where Jesus said it himself. He didn't come for the people who think they have it all together. So you can stop trying. He came for the broken, the beaten up, the messed up, the mess ups, the desperate and the down and out. Because it's okay. It's okay to not be okay with Jesus. But if you remember... Her story, is as good as that is, right, that wasn't the story we started with. Remember we started with another story that she interrupted in this moment? We started with Jairus, and so let's check back in with him, verse 49. So while Jesus was still speaking, so this is a powerful moment. Jesus is giving her dignity. He's healing her. Her bleeding stops. The crowd is in awe of what happens. While he's still speaking, someone from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, just in case you forgot, came running up and said, your daughter is dead. Your daughter's dead. And look at these words. Don't what? Don't don't bother the teacher anymore. What kind of friend is that? What kind of fr- that's not a that's not a friend. Just comes up. Your daughter died. Okay, stop bothering Jesus. That's a that is a terrible friend. I mean, who of you? When someone you love loses someone they love, would send them a card saying, I guess you can stop bothering God now. No one would do that. And yet that's his posture because somewhere he believes that the way things seem is the way things are. Your daughter's dead, Jairus. Stop. There's no hope. There's no point. There's nothing left to ask for. It didn't happen. And so we see Jairus now even more desperate, wondering if that's true, if he should just stop bothering God. And I wonder how many of us have gotten to that point because God hasn't answered your please prayers like you wanted or when you wanted or how you wanted. You've just determined you're going to stop bothering God. You're not going to bother him anymore because that's what you fear you feel like to him, a bother. I have a friend of mine who... uh, who doesn't go to uh, church, doesn't go to this church, doesn't go to any church. I don't, he wouldn't call himself a follower of God, a dear friend for many, many, many years. And uh, I've probably honestly invited him to Soul City over the last, I don't know, you know five, six years, maybe 30, 40 times I've invited him. Uh, he's come once, so that just shows how influential I am as a friend in his <laughs> life. Um, 
But we get together about every couple months because we love each other. He's a good friend. And so we'll get together and we'll catch up on life and our kids and our wives, our careers and all that kind of stuff as we're talking. And then when we come to the end, every single time, I've committed every single time to ask him, hey, Jeff, how can I pray for you this week? You know I pray for you, right? You know that I talk to God about you? He's like, yeah. I'm like, how, <laughs> how, can, I, like, how can I specifically pray for you this week? And every single time, without fail, he says, oh, don't, no, I don't feel like, don't do that. That feels selfish. There's a lot of other things going on in the world that God needs to do. I, I would feel selfish asking you to pray for me or my kids. In other words, don't bother God. You know, as, I, mean, I feel like telling him, hey, you know, God's got, like, call waiting. Like, God can take multiple requests at a time. It's not as though you're going to clog up the line if I pray for you. But that's his posture, his belief that he's a bother to God, so I'm just not going to ask. That's what Jairus' friend is telling him this moment. Don't bother the teacher anymore. But this couldn't be any further from the truth of the reality of relationship with God. The truth is, it actually pleases God when you say, please God. Did you know that it pleases God? It pleases the heart of God when you say, when sometimes that's all you can say is, please God, please God, please God. Do you know that pleases the heart of God? Why? Because he wants to hear you beg? No, because he is a good father and he loves to know and hear every one of your needs and he loves to meet every one of your needs. And so it pleases him as your perfect parent to hear you say, please, God, I don't know what else to say. I don't know what else to do. Please, please, please. And so that's what we see happening in this moment. Verse 50. We don't know how much faith Jairus has left after hearing this news. So Jesus says to him, hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Your friend is a jerk. Oh, wait, that's not, I'm sorry. I added that part. Uh, don't be afraid. Just believe, believe in me, and she will be healed. Verse 51, when he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except for Peter and John and James, some of his earliest followers. He wanted them to see what God was about to do to increase their faith and the child's father and mother. And meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her, which you would expect them to do. They loved her as well, and they were joining in and mourning for her loss. And I love what Jesus does. He just walks by, and I can just see him going, stop wailing. Like, not out of meanness, just like, you don't get the bigger picture. Stop wailing. Stop mourning. She's not dead, but asleep. Verse 53, they, what's the word? They laughed at him. So they were mourning and crying. And then Jesus says, you can stop mourning now. And instantly they become folks who laugh and mock Jesus because they saw things as they seemed. Circumstance was their guide. And she's dead. And so why would we stop mourning? It's already over. But it says this, that Jesus took the girl by the hand and he said, my child, get up. And her spirit returned and at once she stood up. And then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. I love Luke, who wrote this, is actually a doctor. And so he can clinically diagnose that after you're dead, 
uh, you build up quite an appetite. And so he wants to make sure that Jesus was looking out for her. And he says, get her something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. And you may wonder, okay, why? What? No. Like, what? That would never. If my daughter was dead at breakfast and now alive at dinner, I'm going to tweet about that. I'm going to tell some people about that. We just made that whole video and told you Andrew's story. That's not something you keep quiet. Why would Jesus ask them to do so? Good luck with that one, Jesus. Well, Jesus was on a greater mission. This was a stop on his way to the cross. And he was heading to the cross that he knew God would fulfill every prophecy in his perfect timing. And it wasn't time yet to give his life for us. And he knew that this kind of power on display threatened the religious power structure of his day. And so he said, shh, 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 keep it quiet. Don't let anyone know. I still have more to do in this world. And he continues his march towards the cross for you and for me. Two defining moments, powerful moments for Jairus and for this unnamed woman. Huge moments that changed their lives. Can you imagine their life after this moment? Their faith, their perspective on God and on themselves, on their family and friends. Huge moment that all stemmed from one small word, and that word is please. Please, 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 please. They were willing to say please. We have a problem with the word please because what please means is that it's always preceded by powerlessness. Ever thought about that? The reason you have to say please is because you cannot do it by yourself. Please is always preceded by powerlessness, you admitting that you can't, and so you need help. As long as you think that you're in control, as long as you think that you can handle it, as long as you think you can do it on your own, as long as you think you have enough power, then you will never say please. You just will never say please. As long as you continue to act as though you are God and it's all under your control, you're not ever going to say please because you don't believe you have to. But I love the reminder that Anne Lamott, one of my favorite authors, Anne Lamott, gives us. She says, one of the biggest differences between you and God is that God never thinks that he's you. <laughs> but we often think we're God. And we act as such. And as long as you do, you won't find the power of that word, please. So are you willing today to admit your powerlessness to God? Are you willing today to tell the whole story so that you can actually be made whole? You see, what we see in Jairus and what we see in this woman is that powerful things, powerful things happen when you bring your powerlessness to God. Powerful things can happen in your life. Powerful things can happen in the lives of others when you bring your powerlessness to God and say, please, I need you, please. So where do you need to say please today? Where do you need to say please? Maybe for you it's in a, a marriage and you just need to come back to God and say, please, God, please, God, please. I can't do this. I can't fix this. I can't make this happen on my own. Please, God, please. Maybe for you it's for a child. A child that you've lost. A child that's lost. A child you've yet to have. 
a child that's suffering, please, God, please, God, please. Maybe for you, it's a diagnosis that has come up quite suddenly. I have a friend of mine who's gone through six rounds of chemotherapy. And right after the sixth round, I found another tumor. Do do you think in that moment I have some big poetic or prose type prayer full of all kinds of big biblical words? Do you know what my prayer is in that moment for my friend? Please, God, please, God, please. Please, God, please. Maybe for you it's financial realities. Things have gotten out of control and it's time for you to tell the whole story of how you got here and you need to say, God, please, please, I am up against the wall. I don't know how, God, please. Maybe it's for an addiction that you've tried to manage in secret and in the dark, but you need to tell the whole story today to God and to yourself and say, please, God, I can't do this. Please, I need you. Maybe it's for a a shattered dream, something you thought you would have and you don't in this moment today. Are you willing to say, please, one more time, God, please, please. I want you to know my heart. I want you to know my desires, God, please. When you look at the realities of our world today, when you think about all that's happened this last weekend in Orlando, what else can you say but please, God, please, God, please. Please heal. Please bring hope to the families who lost someone. God, please bring hope and healing to our brothers and sisters in the LGBT community in Orlando and around the world. Please, God, please, please let your light and love shine through. When you consider the violence in our own city, when you look out across our city at what we've become so numb and accustomed to here in our own city, that as of today, right now in this moment, so far this year, 273 people have been shot and killed in the city of Chicago. What else can you say? But please, God, please, God, please move. Are you willing today to say please? To call out, to cry out, to fall at the feet, to reach out for his wings and find healing and help and hope there. Are you willing to remember that little word that your parents taught you so long ago? And are you willing to bring it to your perfect parent in God today and simply say, please? So here's what I want to offer you the opportunity to do, to say what your heart is longing to say. Just say, please. And if there's any area in your life that I just walked through or that you know that I could never name, but you know it all too well, a place where you're willing to admit your powerlessness, where you feel overwhelmed and out of options, are you willing today, maybe for one more day, to say to God, please, please, I'm not too proud. I'm not too stubborn. I'm not gonna kid myself that I've got this all under control. Please, God, please. If you're willing to do that today, I wanna invite you to stand up right now. I wanna pray with you and I'll pray over you right now. So if you're willing to say, please, I wanna invite you to stand up right now. And as I pray, I want you to pray in your own words. Maybe the only word you need to say is please, please, please. And normally around here at Soul City Church, we take a posture of open-handedness when we pray. But I'm going to go back to the old school. and We're going to actually fold our hands together and clasp them together in the posture of pleading. And from your heart, as best you can, I want you to call out and cry out. And my hope is that you find today healing in his wings. Will you join me in a prayer right now? 
God, thank you that you are a perfect father who gives good gifts to your children. You love your children. That means you love every single one of us because that's what you call us. And so, God, we can come to you because you're our comfort, you're our hope, you're our strength, an ever-present help in time of trouble. God, you are quick to respond, and you desire to know all of our needs and our pleads. And so we come to you today and we say, please, please, God, for every broken relationship, please, God. For every difficult financial reality, please, God, we're willing to tell the whole story. We're willing to admit our powerlessness. But please, God, will you use, will you demonstrate your power in our lives today for every addiction that's gone unnamed? God, I pray, please, please, will you break the power, the chains of that addiction today? For every person who's without a job and doesn't know what's next, please, God, provide. Please, we pray. Hear our prayers, God, as we come to you with open hands and open hearts. And as we pour out to you and fall on your feet, that we might find healing in your wings, we just simply say to you, please, God, please, for our city, for Orlando, for this world, please, God, please. And I want to invite the rest of you who aren't standing to stand right now, and we're going to call out to God and cry out from this place of powerlessness to find power in his hands right now. So I want to invite you to join us as we worship and close by singing this song together to God right now.